If you would, would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 as we consider two short verses, a doxology, Paul's culminating words at the center of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20, probably familiar words for you, and I hope that this will be helpful to meditate on it for just this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we suffer, how should we pray? One of the earliest readers of the letter to the Ephesians was a man named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John and a bishop or pastor at the church in Smyrna. And we know that he read this letter because he quotes it in one of his own letters. And he knew what it meant to suffer at the very end. 86 years old, he was carted off by the Roman police who took him to be killed in the arena. And when he got there, they told him, just recant. Say, Lord Caesar, away with the atheists. That's what they called Christians then. And he looked at them and he said, away with the atheists. And they said, won't you recant your lordship of Christ? And he said, I can't do that. Eighty and six years, he has been my Lord and he has done me no injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so they said, we'll throw you to the wild beasts. And he said, let them come. They said, we'll light you on fire. And he said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a little and then goes out. And you are ignorant of the fire that lasts for forever and eternal judgment. Do what you will. And so they brought him to a stake and were about to nail him to it. He said, you don't need to nail me. My Lord who brought me here will enable me to stand still in this fire. And right before they lit the flame, he prayed a prayer. And it ended this way. Wherefore also, I praise you, God, for all things. I bless you. I glorify you along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. And then they lit the flame. He didn't burn quickly enough, so they thrust a dagger into his side, and then he burned. When we suffer, how should we pray? The Apostle Paul knew what it meant to suffer, didn't he? He wrote this very letter from prison, wearing chains. <laughs> and how does he pray? What does he pray for when he's in the midst of his trial? 
Our text here is the fulcrum of the book of Ephesians. It's a, a doxology, which is just a fancy Christian way of saying it's a prayer to God to glorify himself. To him be the glory. Paul has extolled in the first half of Ephesians the high heights of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, free and unmerited through the Lord Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. And he's going to go on in chapters 4-6 through to talk about what this then should do to us. How it should manifest in our lives. How it should change us. And sandwiched between all of that, at the end of a prayer, we find... A doxology. And at the center of these verses are five little words that carry the weight of the universe on them. Verse 21. To Him be the glory, or be glory. To Him, that is to God the Father. Of the 97 or so instances of praise and thanksgiving in the New Testament, almost all of them are directed to God the Father. So this is very fitting that this is directed to him as well. But there's a question here about how, how to understand Paul's prayer. Is he saying, to him be glory as in, to him is the glory. That's just true. I'm just telling you, it's a statement. To him is glory. That, that is a way that some of the apostles pray. 1 Peter 4.11, to him belongs glory. But grammatically, you actually can't take it that way. You would have to render it differently. It, the way that this is built, it's like almost every other doxology in the New Testament. It's, it's not a statement of fact. It's a desire. I want this to be the case. To Him be the glory. It's a prayer. I want Him to be glorified. And that's significant because there's two ways that the Bible talks about the glory of God. It talks about God's glory, His weightiness, as being his intrinsic glory or his ascribed glory. His intrinsic glory is the emanation of the fullness of who he is. It's, as some have said before, his holiness going public. God showing himself in all of his manifest glory. The sun cannot but shine its rays and God cannot but be glorious. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, what are the angels singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. His holiness going out. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul himself calls Him the Father of glory. That's His intrinsic glory. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here when he says to Him be glory. Instead, that that would be a statement of fact. Here he's talking about his desire for God to have ascribed glory. And ascribed glory is the honor or the praise, the adoration, the thanksgiving, the exaltation, magnification of who God is by his people. God doesn't need ascribed glory to be glorious, but he calls his people to ascribe to him glory because it's fitting he is glorious so he says say that talk like that pray like that sing like that ascribe to him glory you hear this in the psalm psalm 29 1 to 2 ascribe to the lord O heavenly beings ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord 
the glory due his name. It's due to him. It's appropriate. You're just calling him what he is. Ascribe to him glory. Praise him. To go to the Grand Canyon and to call it glorious doesn't make it so, but it is appropriate if you're there and you're overwhelmed by the size and the grandeur of this thing to say something. And so it is, ascribed glory. Paul's explosion of praise to God, having surveyed the landscape of God's glorious grace in the gospel, his prayer, even in the midst of suffering, is to him be the glory. May it all be to him. C.S. Lewis said, the glory of God is the real business of life. I think that's right. I assume that sitting here today are lots and lots of people suffering in a variety of ways. Some, I'm sure, are far more challenging and heart-rending than I would know. How do you pray in the midst of that suffering? I think Paul would instruct us, we pray, to Him be the glory. How do we do that? What does that sound like? How, how do you get to the place where you can pray like that? You don't just pray, let the suffering stop. <laughs> you, you start praying about God and His glory. How do you get there? I think Paul instructs us in that, in these incredible few verses. And so we're going to look at that. What does it mean to pray to God be the glory? It means three things. First, it means glory be to our transcending God. Glory be to our transcending God. We pray for God to receive His glory first because He is so much bigger than us. Now, He says, to Him who is able. You just stop there. <laughs> that would be enough, wouldn't it? To him who is able. That is a wonderful statement about God's power, isn't it? Just able. No qualifiers. God can do whatever he wants to do. God is able. That's not the same as saying that God can do anything. Do you ever... I grew up singing the God can do anything but fail song. God can't do anything. God can't sin. God can't not be God. God can't be born. There's a lot of things God can't do because it's not what he wants to do. It's against his character. But God can do anything he wants to do. God is able. This is what theologians call omnipotence. He is all-powerful. 47 times in the Old Testament, he is called God Almighty. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever God wants to do, he'll do. And so Paul is saying to him, the one who is able, I want this one to be glorified, to him who is able, and then what does he do? Who is able to do? How does this perfect power and ability work itself out? 
If, if God can do anything he wants to do, what does he do? Like lightning from the sky or glory cloud, earthquake, like what's he doing? He does do some of that in the pages of scripture. We hear about that, but what's the normal way that God does? What's the normal way that God uses his power in the world? The normal way is what theologians call providence. In, in simple language for a person like me, it would be everything. God does everything. Absolutely everything. God is in control of everything. He is sovereign over everything. Psalm 147, verses 8 to 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He's in control of the hydrological cycle. He's in control of fish in the sea and birds in the air. Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes to his right mind, Daniel chapter 4 says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God just does it all. He's in charge of it all. And in case that's too, too many words for you, Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. What does God do with all of this power? Everything. History. Every moment of every atom in this universe is God doing something. That's why the Westminster Larger Catechism says, in question 18, what are the works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. God has orchestrated every event in history to the great purpose and end of glorifying himself. Paul says it this way at the end of... Romans chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. And honestly, if we just stop there, to him who is able to do, I mean, that'd be enough fuel for worship right there, wouldn't it? You could just end of prayer. Glory. But Paul goes further than omnipotence. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than. This is that's the ESV's way of trying to render three words in the Greek that are just Paul piling up phrases to try to get at this idea of something that is beyond us. I mean, very woodenly, it'd be like him who is super more than super over. <laughs> Paul's making up a word to try to express how far beyond us 
God's doing with all of his power is. It's, it's more. He's used this word before in Ephesians, the surpassing and immeasurable love or riches or power of Christ. Particularly in chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And Paul is saying that what God does with his power to glorify himself is necessarily far and above and beyond. Beyond what? Two things. One, far more abundantly than all that we ask. Brothers and sisters, our prayers undersell God. What do you what do your prayers sound like usually? I hope I have a good day. <laughs> do good on this test. Traveling mercies. I mean, there's good things to pray for. Give us a stare of daily bread. Amen. You should pray for those things. <laughs> I'm just saying. Even if you tried to pray bigger than God, you couldn't. <laughs> So shouldn't we try harder? <laughs> we pray, God, would you, would you save my neighbor? You should. How about, God, would you save the nations? Is he able? John Newton wrote in a hymn, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions bring. For His grace and power are such, none could ever ask too much. Not only does God's power exceed our prayers, He says, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Our thoughts even undersell God. <laughs> you can't even think of how powerful and glorious and great He is. His ability exceeds our capacity to imagine it. That's how great and glorious God is. You can't even imagine. You're unable to form in your mind as a coherent thought everything that God could do to glorify himself. Just think about it for a second. The Ephesian church, when they first got this letter, they're in a house somewhere in Ephesus. Maybe 40, 50, 100 of them crowded in there, would they have ever imagined that 2,000 years from that day, there would be people gathered in Maryland on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, with like microphones and lights and heating and cooling, and they would be saying, Jesus is glorious. Could they have ever imagined that all around the world, there'd be people gathering, doing this? Could they have ever seen it? No, of course not. God does far more abundantly. Isaac Watts. But who can speak thy wondrous deeds? Thy greatness all our thoughts exceeds. He's taking that from Psalm 145 verse 3, which says, God the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. You still should praise Him. <laughs> it's greatly to be praised. You're never going to find the edge. How 
small we often pray, how small we often think of God. We think, man, if if God could just help us win this next election. (laughs) Like, that's it? I think sometimes we make a mistake of trying to tell God how to glorify himself. Like he can't figure it out. But when we pray, we ought to have an appropriate sense of our smallness and God's grandeur. I don't tell God my plan and then say, go ahead. I say, not my will, but yours be done, right? I don't think we often take this kind of beyond language seriously enough. If it's true that God does everything, that he is in control of unspeakable evil and suffering in this world. Does it also mean that he can use that for his glory? I feel like sometimes when we read this verse, maybe it's just me, I just like click into prosperity gospel mode with this, right? Like I think far more abundantly just means a promotion. It just means like a bigger house or maybe we baptize it a little bit. A bigger church, right? Bigger ministries. A lot of people coming to faith in Christ. Those things would be nice. But if all the above is included in what God can do to glorify himself, then so is all the below. Joseph. His brothers sin against him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. (laughs) And when they show up at his doorstep and he's the second in command in Egypt, you know what he says? This was God's plan the whole time. Nebuchadnezzar, you even know that God had raised him up for the purpose of judging his people and then eventually judging him in order to change him into a God worshiper. Do you realize COVID was God's plan? I mean, far more abundantly may look like getting passed up for the promotion. Far more abundantly than may look like when she left and took the kids. Far more abundantly may look like standing at a graveside and asking God why. Is he still glorious? Can God glorify himself from a hospital bed? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Michael Card tells a story of a man named Joseph from the Maasai tribe who, walking down the road one day, came into contact with a Christian who preached the gospel to him, and he was saved. And so he goes back to his village, and he starts telling people about Christ and how they can have their sins forgiven by this God who came down and became a man and died for them and was resurrected. 
and they hate everything that he's saying. And so they start beating him, throwing him on the ground, lashing him with barbed wire while the women are yelling at him and throwing things. Eventually, he's, he's thrown out of the village by the river. Comes back to consciousness a few days later, and he goes right back to the village. And says, you can have your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. And they beat him twice as hard. Throw him down by the river. And he gets up and goes back a third time. And before he can even say anything, they start beating him. And he wakes up in his own bed with the women who were beating him with barbed wire tending to his wounds because they have all been converted to Jesus Christ. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. If it's far more abundant, I'm just saying it means it's going to be beyond you sometimes. (laughs) You're just not going to always understand it how God is glorifying Himself in this world and in your life. And so what do you pray when you don't understand? To Him be the glory. To God be the glory. John Flavel Puritan said, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. God's part is to know Ours is to pray to God be the glory. But it's not only that we pray to God be the glory because He's a transcending God, also because He is a descending God. Part of how God works this phenomenal power is to put it in the least likely place. Look at verse 20. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. According to the power, meaning fit to the measure of. It's a quantity word. And the word power here is just an echo of the word able. God, who is able to do absolutely anything He wants to do, to glorify Himself, focuses His ability in this way. It's like the sun with all of its rays shining on the earth and a little magnifying glass just intensely pointing it at one small area. According to the power, and then he says, there's three phrases here. According to the power at work within us, he says, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Three prepositional phrases, all beginning with in, all talking about the same basic reality. That God is glorifying himself in a supreme way, not only by doing all things for his glory, but especially by working that infinite power inside of you. His church through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he said in verse 16. Jog your eyes up to verse 16 in this prayer. He says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in His inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is that God who controls all things has ordained to 
descend to live inside of sinners. His precious, glorious Son to take up residence in you and in me and to take all of the power of heaven and put it at work in you. How does God glorify Himself through His church? It's revealing His his love inwardly. What's the word that He uses here? According to the power at work. He's working. He's, He's doing something. He's active. Working in us. And what does He do? Well, He saves us. (laughs) He brings life where there was only death. He adopts into his family. He glorifies. He saves us. He sanctifies us. He raises the dead. He's changing our desires, revealing Christ to us, shaping us into his image. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that when we behold Christ, as we're beholding him, we are being transformed into one degree of glory to another. God glorifies Himself in all that He does, in every moment, in every passage of time, and yet the apex of His glory here on earth is His redemption and transformation of sinners. (laughs) He started this way. In Ephesians chapter 1, talking all about our election in Him and predestination in Him, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. He's given us this inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And He's given us the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You get the picture? God is glorified in everything. And yet God is supremely glorified in you. In his son. First Peter 4.11 Whoever serves, let him do it. As one who serves by the strength which God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He puts the treasure in jars of clay. And this, I hope you feel the astounding contrast of this, just in this little verse. Transcending power, can do anything he wants to do, sets up shop in you. (laughs) Incredible, isn't it? This is what Jonathan Edwards called the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. You sing it all the time in the song. Reginald Heber wrote, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. Revelation calls him the lion and the lamb. He is unapproachably holy, and yet he lives with you. Transcending and descending. This is one of those truths that it's so easy to become comfortable with. I mean, God could have, with all of that power, just come here to earth like Napoleon, right? Just roll up on England. This is mine now. I'm taking it. Thank you very much. If God wanted to glorify himself in that way, he certainly could have, but he didn't. He came to earth humble, unacknowledged, despised even. 
Because God must be more glorified than simply seen for his transcendent power. He must be glorified in the church for his gentleness, his tenderness, his mercy, and his love. And so he comes in. Do you remember the story of Mephibosheth in Second? Samuel chapter 9, he's one of Saul's sons. Saul is killed, and so David's now the king. And in the ancient Near East, if you became king, what you would always do is you would kill all the previous king's family. Just get rid of them, totally. And Mephibosheth was uh, crippled in the legs, and so doubly in the ancient Near East, you would have gotten rid of this guy. But that's not what David does. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth is brought to David, and he falls down before him. And do you remember what David says? He says, come with me. You're in my family now. You get to sit at my table every day and eat my food. And I'll treat you like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth's response is so great. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. (laughs) You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which we all once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. To Him be the glory. We were prodigal sons. We were glory stealers. We were rebels. And He said, you know how I'm going to glorify myself more than anything else? I'm going to take all of my glory and give it to you. Not only am I going to show it off, I'll put it inside of you by giving you my very son. The gospel is the apex of the glory of God. It is when God shows all of his attributes in stunning color. And he says, I am not only a king who should be feared, I am a father to be loved. I am a savior to be adored. I'm a servant to be exalted. Oh, should we not then give Him glory? Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. That same power that has orchestrated the suffering that is in your life is now at work in you to demonstrate His glory in the midst of that suffering. Our prayers should not just be, God, take it away from me. Our prayers should also be, God, show Yourself in me. 
Second Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Even though the outer self is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is producing in you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't look to the things that are seen. Look to the things that are unseen. Our friend Ray, who Darlene used to work with in California, was famous wherever he went because he would end every sentence the same way. Glory to God. Glory to God. Is that a sandwich? Glory to God. How are you doing today? Glory to God. Glory to God. Love Ray. And a year or two after we had moved back here from California, we got a call from Ray out of the blue, and he said, it's terminal. So we cried, prayed, talked for a while, said, we'll see you again somehow. (laughs) And you know, I answered that call. Glory to God. To him be the glory according to the power at work within you. What surpassing power God works in the lives of saints when they can face death and say, not loss, gain. Sometimes God's glory shines brightest from a hospital bed. But that's not where this ends. (laughs) Like many doxologies, Paul takes it as far as he possibly can. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, that's the transcending God according to the power work within us, that's the descending God, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's our never-ending God. Much like the rest of the doxologies, Paul's just piling up words to say emphatically, God, I want you to be glorified throughout all generations. It's, it's a Hebraic way of saying from one generation to another, as long as there's people, keep worshiping forever and ever, wouldn't leave just the ages of the ages. It's a very typical formula for expressing time without end. Just a couple of observations about this. The The wonder of eternity is that even if you and I weren't there, the object of our worship would be God. God is eternal. To Him be glory forever implies that God will be forever. The object of our worship is forever. You could be snuffed out of existence and God would still be. He would still be glorified. He is eternally self-existent, independent, always worthy to be worshipped. And I bother pointing that out because just think about all the counterfeit things that you and I give our hearts to. How long do they last? 
like video games and food and a career and obedient kids, like 10 seconds. <laughs> Being right on Facebook, I don't know. What, what are the things that you and I really crave? By reason of strength, 80 years, is that how long it's going to last? Like a nice suit? <laughs> and God is forever. <laughs> he really is worthy of worship. But Paul does actually tell us here that at least two entities will exist forever. He says, in the church and in Christ Jesus. If everything else were to fade away on this planet, there would still be the church and Christ Jesus. And if that's all there ever was, that would be enough for an eternity of worship, wouldn't it? We would never run out of fuel. As long as the church exists, we'll get to know and worship Jesus. I mean, think about it. This sermon, how long has this been going on? 40 minutes or something like that? And you're already like, man, I'm starting to think about lunch. It's not. It's kind of like balding guy up front. Is starting, He just needs to end. And Right? Like we get bored of stuff pretty quick. You've ever done like a movie marathon, your favorite movies? How long does that really last before you're actually just asleep on the couch, right? <laughs> I mean, even the best things in life, after a while, you're like, this is kind of tedious. <laughs> Do you realize that when you are with your Lord in glory, you will not be bored of worshiping Him for one second. And you will have lots of seconds <laughs> to continue worshiping. What does that say about Him? When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. God's love so sure shall still endure. All measureless and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels song. Or the way we normally sing it. Here, you sing it with me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the One more word. Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Truly, oh God, your glory is forever. To you be the glory 
in this church. To you be the glory in everything. Far more than we can ask or think. Oh God, do what only you can do. Glorify yourself in everything. May your glory rest upon this church. Be at work in them. So that the world may know that there is a creator and he deserves all worship. Oh, Father, we long for the day when we hear the angels say, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come and he is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Oh, we long to join that new song that the elders sing around the throne, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We long to join the multitudes of creation, heaven above and earth beneath, every knee bent. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We long with them to say amen. And so, Father, help us today to say amen. Help us right now in the trials and in the hard stuff of life that these dear saints are in the midst of. I pray that you would help them to say, to you be the glory. Amen. That they would be content to leave all in your sovereign hands and find rest knowing that you will always do what this world was made to do, to bring you glory. Father, I pray a special blessing on the leadership of this church. May you make them faithful to the task that you have called them to. Give them great humility as they shepherd and serve. And God, when we do meet again in glory and see the fruition of all of our hopes and dreams in the face of Jesus Christ. To you be the glory. Forever and ever. Amen.